0: This episode is brought to you by Alpha Architect for Advisors. Whether you're an established firm or just starting out, you know the right systems can be the difference maker to achieving your growth goals. That's why Alpha Architect now offers a suite of turnkey model portfolios that can be customized to fit your practice. Built on Alpha Architect's decades of rigorous academic research, our model portfolios aim to systematize portfolio management so that you can spend less time tinkering with funds and more time finding your next great client. Systemize today to save time tomorrow. That's building with conviction. That's Alpha Architect for Advisors. To learn more about Alpha Architect's model portfolios and to schedule a consultation, visit advisors.alphaarchitect.com models. That's advisors, A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S, dot models. Alpha Architect for Advisors, built with conviction. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long-term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Lydia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Olydia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients
1: of Lydia Capital.
0: Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Corey Hofstein, co-founder and chief investment officer of New Research. This is a Show Us Your Portfolio episode Record lets us look under the hood and get insight into how he approaches investing and the strategies, assets, and vehicles he uses for his personal portfolio. We get into how Corey returns taxes, his portfolio, his investment in stocks, bonds, and managed futures, and how Corey is trying to build a portfolio that can hold up in all different types of market environments. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Corey Hofstein of Newfound Research.
1: Corey, thank
0: you for joining us today.
1: Gentlemen, thank you for having me. Great to-
0: We um, have this concept where we kind of get off the regular excess returns, sort of interviewing experts about strategies and, and investing. And, talk to professionals like yourself about how they go about managing their own personal portfolio, what investment strategies, what assets they're investing in, and hopefully what investors can learn from that. And so that's what we're going to talk to you about today. You were fortunate enough to say yes to come on. Not everybody always feels comfortable coming on and talking about their personal portfolio. We obviously don't get to numbers. We keep it higher level and talk about Sort of strategies um the one cool thing I think that you'll sort of talk about today is and it's a it's sort of revisiting a concept that you talked about with us before, which is this idea of return stacking and you have some new ETFs that take this return stacking concept and actually implement them in an ETF wrapper. so that's going to be that's going to be neat to kind of revisit and talk about and, sh- and share with our audience so again, thanks for doing this. we appreciate it.
1: My pleasure, and share how I eat my own cooking. Right, uh, in many ways, I, I like to think I build the products I want to invest in. So, hopefully, give some some ideas as to how I actually use them.
0: We always like to start sort of at a higher level, though, like like a financial advisor would, which isn't you know before you get into strategy, you want to learn about what that person's goals are and what their objectives are. So, when you think about your personal portfolio, how do you think about it?
1: What are you trying to achieve with your investments? Yeah, this is this is the. The big question, right? Um, and it's changed over time. When I was younger, it was very much about trying to get to that point where I felt comfortable with the assets I had. I've been very fortunate that I think I've exceeded the amount of assets I need to meet my future liabilities. So I should start by saying I'm a really big believer in, in liability driven investing. Uh, that's something that's very popular among pensions. I think individuals in many ways, all the things that we do, um, we have these future liabilities that we're trying to meet with our investment assets and our human capital, right? We're trying to create income, we're trying to put our money to work for us, and we're trying to meet the needs of our children, potentially, uh, future retirement, future things we want to spend money on, whether it's vacations or homes or whatever. Um, So for me, I've always very much taken a liability-driven approach, I've gotten to the point where I feel confident enough, both in the human capital I have, uh, you know, my earnings as well as the investment capital that I've sort of superseded my future liabilities in a good, like, so I've, I've met my liabilities. I think I'm totally fine there for the type of spending I want. Uh, and now the big question for me is, okay, what, what else do I need money for? Um, and, and I think what I have concluded is sort of two things. Um, The first is that I don't want to have to think about money. Um, I I think, right. People say money doesn't solve your problems. Well, money can help de-stress you in many ways. If you have a problem, um, you know, it can free up your, your time. It can, you can hire someone to help you do yard work or or clean the house or all that sort of stuff. So for me, um, having a little bit of excess money for those needs certainly leads to a higher quality of life. Um, And then as I sort of think about becoming a father soon, a huge priority for me is education with my kids. So I was given a tremendous gift from my parents, which was I was able to go to a private high school, private college and private graduate school with and came out with zero debt. My parents were able to pay for all of that. Uh, And I recognize that it is just a tremendous gift that I would like to be able to pass on to my children. So as I sort of say, okay, I think I think I'm on the path for the retirement I want. N- the next goal for me really is to say, "How can I meet that that uh, dream of being able to give my kids that that gift of education?" Well, when your kid goes to school, it's going
0: to be like a hundred grand, so <laughs> we got to start saving. <laughs> well, that's that's yeah, you got to got to save a lot more now. Five twenty nine all the way. Absolutely. Do you think about your retirement and what you want to do in retirement or are you so far from retirement that you are just like you know retirement is not even in my mind i don't envision what my re- my retirement might be like
1: the way i think about it like retirement to me is not necessarily quitting doing everything retirement to me is is changing a pace of life so i just to set a little context i'm 35 now i will have uh, been running my business for 15 years this august Right. Um, And it's a lot of work and you're full speed and I'm about to have kids for the first time and that's going to make it even more work. Right. And so in terms of just a sustainability of and quality of life, I think for me, a big one, a big goal would be I want to get to 50 and be able to take my foot off the gas a little bit. Um, But I really do believe in the philosophy. If you don't use it, you lose it, both in physical health and sort of mental acuity. So one of the things I've really tried to build into my life is just more exploration, um, willingness to try new things, uh, both physically and mentally. I'm trying to learn Spanish, which I never learned. I thought it'd be fun to try to learn another language. So I'm trying to do more of that. And I would hope that in, you know, quote unquote retirement, that's more of the stuff I'm doing, getting outside more, spending more time with my kids before they become adults, right? So if I can sort of slow down by 50 that means my first kid will be 15 going off to college hopefully three years after that so for me it's like can i set myself up so that at age 50 i can make sure i'm there for every single sports game every single play every whatever they're into be present in their lives before they become adults and then sort of transition into uh, a more sustainable lifestyle
2: do you think you're someone who will always work like i always think about that myself like well i always
1: want to do something like will i lose my purpose if i'm not doing something do you think you'll always do some degree of work? I would hope I, I I'll always fill the time. I think what scares me about the idea of not working is saying there, there's a lot of hours in the day, right? Uh, and I think if you don't fill the time, that's where you can really get into trouble in retirement. My father actually retired pretty young. He was an entrepreneur, started a couple of businesses. Very intense, very high speed. Um, during the dot-com bubble, took his last company public. And then once they were acquired said, I'm going to take a year off and then just never went back to work. And I think my mo- my mother was concerned that if, if, uh, if he didn't go back to work, they'd end up getting divorced. But you know, she ended up buying him a bike and he loved biking. It became a 20 a, a year passion for him. He'll spend hours a day working on his bike and planning new routes. And then he'll go explore those routes. So I think as long as you can find the hobbies, you don't necessarily have to go back to work, but it was a transition for him when he he stopped being an entrepreneur, stopped being a CEO. You know, he got involved in different boards. He helped other entrepreneurs. But about 10 years later, he just sort of felt I've been out of the game long enough that I don't have a lot to add anymore. And and so I would sort of hope for me, uh, there's a similar transition, right? I'm pulling back a little bit, hit 50. Doesn't mean I, I quit outright, but I would love to See if there's other ways in which I can contribute to the space that's just not as active hands-on management necessarily.
2: You were nice enough to send us a graph of the different asset classes you invest in. You know, I was going to turn it into a pie chart like I have in all the other episodes, and then I realized that's not possible. Um, and so I want to address that issue first before we talk about what you invest in, which is this idea that you're, the exposure you're gaining is more than the money you're investing. And you're the first person we've talked to that's done that. So I'm wondering if you could just talk that through a little bit and why you do that.
1: Yeah. So if you go back to the basic tenets of modern portfolio theory, right? You have this idea of the efficient frontier, where you're taking all these different asset classes and you're finding the trade-off of maximum risk versus reward. And what the core concept of modern portfolio theory says to do is find the max-sharp portfolio, find that portfolio that maximizes risk per unit of reward or excess, excuse me, maximizes return per unit of risk, excess return per unit of risk, and then lever it up. Uh, None of us do that for some reason. Right? We all are afraid of using leverage. Um, and I'm not really sure why. Almost anyone who's a homeowner in the United States takes on a considerable amount of leverage. That, that's what a mortgage is. Uh, it's a tax advantage form of leverage, but it's still leverage. Um, but we don't do it in our investments. And my view is you can create a much more well diversified, much more sustainable portfolio. Uh, if if you are willing to mix asset classes and then add leverage to get to the risk level you want. And so that's something I have been working towards over time. I will say that as an asset manager, you're under certain compliance and regulatory oversight that makes it very hard for you to trade, right? So for me to explicitly trade futures in my account to get leverage and be actively rolling and trading Uh, I'd have to be sending all sorts of compliance review tickets over time that would just be hard. So for me, it's been a process of how can I package up these ideas into funds and ETFs that I can then buy myself so that I can implement the strategy. But um, long term, right? You look at someone like Warren Buffett, you try to decompose his returns. He was buying high quality, profitable stocks and levering up his portfolio 1.6 times, right? This isn't a a new concept. What I'm trying to do is take the same core idea and just diversify it further. Stocks, bonds, and to me, managed futures is really the third leg of the stool.
2: Yeah, I remember the superstar investor report that AQR did on that. And, you know, that was the surprising part of it to a lot of people is a lot of people know the quality and the value about Buffett, but a lot of people don't think about the leverage.
1: And this is something institutions, like the approach I'll talk about with return stacking, something institutions have been doing for decades. PIMCO, coined the idea back in the 1980s with this thing called portable alpha which got really popular in in the early 2000s and the idea is for your core betas like stocks and bonds you don't have to buy the underlying right you don't have to for if you want a hundred dollars of stocks you don't have to go out and buy a hundred dollars worth of stocks if you want the s p 500 you can put ten dollars in a futures account and buy a hundred dollars notional of s p futures and get all the upside and the downside. And then you've got $90 left over that you can invest in something else. And and maybe that something else is a diversifying alpha strategy. So you get this sort of separation between beta and alpha that I think gives you a lot more control in your exposure, potentially, uh, as well as the ability to lever a more diversified portfolio to an attractive uh, rate of risk and return.
2: Before we dig into return stacking a little more, I want to talk about sort of the basics behind the building blocks underneath. Um, you have five different asset classes in the pie chart you sent us. can Can you just talk about at a high level how you've selected the asset classes you invest in and how you think about how much money you allocate between them?
1: Yeah, so I, I actually really think of it as just three assets. I think so the five you're referencing, I've got public equity, I've got private equity and seed investments. I've got uh, bonds, I've got managed futures, and then I have just like a little dabbling of crypto. Probably could have left crypto off there, but I wanted to be fully transparent. I do have a little bit of crypto in there. Um goes back to my being willing to explore ideas I'm uncomfortable with concept. Um, what I'm really looking for is what I think are key long-term return drivers. I think to have return, you have to take risk. Stocks and bonds represent two of the big muscle movements when it comes to risk premia that are available. I think it's highly defensible why you should earn return long-term for holding stocks and bonds. So I think for me, it's about trying to build a portfolio around those two concepts. Uh, The big risk of a only stock and bond portfolio, though, in my opinion, is inflation risk. Both of those assets are highly sensitive to inflationary shocks, as we saw last year. And so I think a third leg of the stool should be a strategy that does well in those environments. Um, Risk parity strategies would look to something like commodities. I'm not a huge fan of commodities because they do exceptionally poorly during deflationary environments. Whereas managed futures as a strategy, which can go long and short, global futures markets including equities, bonds, currencies, and commodities, I think has some really nice properties as a strategy. It's historically exhibited very low correlation of stocks and bonds. It's exhibited some absolute return-like characteristics. It's done... Historically, very well during periods of equity crises and has historically done very well during inflationary periods. So, I think it's a great sort of third leg of the stool to complement both stock and bond risk premia.
2: I want to dig into each one of them individually. Go, starting off with bonds, um, we've had people on, on the podcast who don't have bonds at all, which obviously is not what you're doing. We've had people who have a buy and hold allocation of bonds. And then we've had people like Wes Gray, our, our, both of our good friend, who only said he would use bonds with trend following and would never invest in bonds without trend following. Where do you fall, like, on that spectrum?
1: Yeah, so I'm going to take a big step back. I think all of this needs... We talk about our investments a lot. I think the part that shouldn't be ignored, again, if we're talking holistically, is your human capital. So let me let me take a little divergent step. For 99% of people, right, they can sort of white-collar, even blue-collar, really, workers who are who are investing, you have investment capital And then you have your human capital and your human capital. That sort of consistent paycheck is basically like being long a bond, sort of an typically an inflation protected bond probably has a little bit of credit risk to it. Maybe if you're at a great company, it's, it's an investment, great bond, right? So your human capital, the thing that gives you a paycheck is like having a massive bond in your portfolio. You actually could, if you wanted to sort of figure out, okay, I'm, I'm going to get all these distributions over the next until my retirement, you know, what is that? What's actually the net present value of that bond? What's the duration of it? And you could model it as a bond. Conversely, all those liabilities in the future, those are bonds. You're short that retirement, all that spending in retirement. That's sort of a bond that starts 20 or 30 years out. Those are your liabilities. Those are bonds. You're short. Most people, right? When they, when they're young, have way more of their capital tied up in their human capital. That net present value of all that future earnings is really big, and it's a big bond position. So they probably should have a massive stock portfolio, right, When in their investment side. In fact, there's papers out there that argue you should have a highly levered stock portfolio to make sure you're balanced in your investments and your human capital. Um, Conversely, as you get older, right, that human capital goes to zero. And there's a reason you probably don't want to have just stocks in your portfolio anymore because now you're totally unbalanced and that's why your glide path starts to introduce bonds. Okay, so go, now going back to Corey, why do you own bonds? My human capital is all over the place. Like, it's, it, like I'm an entrepreneur. I have ups, I have downs. It's very hard for me to model my human capital. So the way I then think about it is I want to use my investment capital to build as all weather a portfolio I can that I think is going to deliver me attractive long term rates of return. Why wouldn't I invest in bonds? They're a risk premium, right? Just like stocks. I think I will get compensated for owning them. The the risk I think we're, we're and, and by the way, I loved your episode with Wes, where I think people go wrong with bonds is if you were to say, take 100% stocks and then sell 40% to buy bonds and you look at the volatility of a 100% stock portfolio versus the volatility of a 60-40 portfolio, people see that drop in volatility and they go, wow, diversification is amazing. Well, the reality is if you took that same 100% stock portfolio and took 40% and just put it in cash, you would have a big drop in volatility. And so, in fact, the drop in volatility from 100% stocks to, say, a 60-40 is not coming from diversification. It's actually just coming from de-risking. Bonds just tend to be a lot less risky than stocks. There's only like, of the big drop in volatility, 80% of it just comes from the fact that bonds are less risky. 20% comes from the lack of correlation between stocks and bonds. Well, if your portfolio is less risky, you're going to have lower long-term returns. In theory, right, your rate of return should be correlated to the amount of risk you take, we would hope. Um, And so to me, like when you're young, if you're aggressive, bonds don't make sense because you're de-risking unless you can use leverage. And so that's where, to me, it comes back to, if I can take bonds and lever them up, uh, I think it makes a lot of sense to include in the portfolio because it's now, it's just adding another risk premium, just like stocks. And I'm not necessarily going to earn a lower return because I've taken them up to the same commensurate risk level.
2: Yeah, you know, I think that point about human capital is so important. I don't do a good job of that in my own life, is like thinking about, we've got these charts of our portfolios, but thinking about human capital and how that plays into it. I mean, you don't see anybody's chart that has human capital on there. And and like you talked about, it's very hard to model it or very hard to figure out what it's worth, but it's it's as the younger you are, and even you know other my 40s, even in your 40s or your 30s or your 50s, I mean, it is still a huge portion, you know, in in those are your big earning years, so it's still a really big deal that we that we probably don't do a good job of capturing.
1: Absolutely. I think and again, like a lot of the investment framework makes a lot of sense when you say okay, why am I transitioning from stocks to bonds? Why do I have to work an extra couple of years? Well, because again, that you're, you're basically adding more bonds to your portfolio. You're adding more certainty. You're adding that income. And then um, you're offsetting those future liabilities explicitly, right? If I owe you know, $100,000 in 30 years and I can go long a bond that'll pay me off $100,000 in 30 years, I've explicitly immunized my liability. So again, I think... Um, accounting for the human capital is a huge part. I wish I could have in that investment uh, portfolio I sent you explicitly said, hey, this is what my human capital looks like. Uh, but again, I have no idea. So
2: so the bonds, the exposure you're gaining through futures, right?
1: Yes. So the bond exposure, uh, well, so to be clear, I invest in funds that I'm either directly an advisor or a sub-advisor on, and those funds use futures to get access to uh, treasuries
2: okay so that core bond position is not trend followed
1: uh correct that is just core fixed income uh across the curve two five ten and ultra so long dated uh predominantly mixed towards um the belly of the curve uh but it is um yeah it's just u.s treasury futures exposure
2: and how about equities um how do you how do you gain your exposure to equities How, how do you sort of think about equities in your portfolio
1: Yeah, this is where I really messed up. Uh, this is, this is, so I had the good fortune of, um, being successful early on in my career, uh, pocketed a decent amount of cash, but it was all taxable. And I made the mistake of buying individual securities. My tilt there tended to be towards higher quality, profitable companies. Um, a little tilt towards like dividend growers. And they have uh, and that was like in 2012, 2013 that I started doing that. I probably stopped around 2015, but the market just did so well that I have lost all opportunity to tax loss harvest those. So I'm sort of stuck in this taxable position with a low cost basis that I've been working over years to try to figure out how to unwind. But if there's like a, a real big mistake I think I made early on, it was it wasn't thinking about. How is this going to be 10 years down the road? I I wish I had put those in ETFs because even doing something like, right, I want to refresh that quality portfolio over time, that profitability tilt, everything is now taxable versus if I had found uh, an ETF structure that I really like, a manager that I really trust to do that for me, all of that turnover could have been done in a very tax efficient way for those taxable assets. So most of your portfolio is in individual stocks right now. Yeah, so I have, yeah, so so sort of two components. There's a big chunk of individual stocks. And then again, through one of the uh, directly advised newfound portfolios, there's a chunk of uh, individual securities that we actively manage in there.
0: How is it structured between, you have obviously a taxable account and there's, and and do you have a set-by array? Do you have like retirement vehicles that you're actually investing through? Because oh. um, I was just thinking like, you know, it would have been great at that point in time when you were, you had that liquidity event, you had this money come in, whatever happened there. If you were still running a small business, you could have set up a set by array. You could have, I'm just thinking of shifting, how stuff could have been shifted around maybe.
1: So sort of two two thoughts. Uh, the first is an incredibly embarrassing admission, which is, while I set all that stuff up for my employees, I'm not an employee of the firm I own. And I wasn't even aware I qualified for it. So I went years without realizing I could have had a qualified, you know, non-taxable account. Like I, I like like close to a decade of running running money, which is really embarrassing. But I, I do want to highlight like being knowledgeable in one area of investments does not mean you're knowledgeable in all areas of investments. I am not a tax expert by any means. Um so I think I really like again, an area I wish I could go back and fix, I would have been a lot more thoughtful about that. There, and even little things like, I didn't realize that when I got married to my wife, I could open a 529 in her name that I could have passed down to my kid. I could have been saving in my 529 for five years now. Nope, mess that one up, right? So there's all sorts of little, like, talk to your CPA. Get smart on this stuff. Um, so, so, but I will, the second point I will make is, I generally don't spend a huge amount of time thinking about taxes. Not that I'm going to make tax inefficient choices. But a huge part of my life is saying, how much easier is it for me to make another dollar in profit versus all the brain damage it's going to take to think about doing a little bit of tax sheltering? Like, I, I I just think for me, where I am in my life and and the things I can control, is it worth it for me to spend all the time trying to figure out how to tax shelter my assets versus just spend all the time trying to grow my income? And I've sort of made the trade-off of, Except for some low-hanging fruit, I'm not doing any tax sheltering, tax dodging, tax tricks. It's too much brain damage to use a, a Wes Wes's word. I'm just going to focus all my energy and effort on just growing my profitability.
2: Yeah, on your first point, you know th- that's true of me as well on this whole financial planning idea. And you know we're actually doing releasing a new podcast next week around that. But you know I, I know so little. Like I might know a lot about factor investing, but people assume because you know that, like you know all this stuff about these advanced financial planning concepts and. You know, there's so many basic holes I have, you know, in, in financial planning, and I went and got the CFP to try to address it to some degree, but it's not just because you know one thing, you suddenly know the other thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think this is where um, the industry at large overly discounts the value of a financial planner. Like someone who really understands that stuff easily earns their fee, in my opinion, because they can save you so much in in post-tax. Uh, return.
2: Some of these next questions might be a little bit of a moot point because you have, you know, this this equity portfolio you can't sell for tax reasons. But how how do you think about international exposure in your portfolio? I mean, there's the Jack Bogle type people that think the U.S. is more than enough. And then there's other people who say, you know, this is a diversifier that everybody should have. I mean, how how do you think about that idea?
1: Yeah, the rhetorical question I'm going to ask is what is international exposure? I I don't need you. I don't want to put the hosts on the spot. Well, that'll be the last question of the podcast. Yeah, what what does it even mean to be international exposure? Um if you are a US company that does 100% of its revenue abroad. Are you a US company or are you an international company? If you're a uh, if you've in a US company that's domiciled in Ireland for tax dodging reasons. Are you a US company or are you an international company? If you're a French company that does 100% of its expenses and 100% of its revenue in the US, are you a domestic company or an international company? Like, I'm, I'm not sure just because a company is listed abroad, it makes sense to call them an international company. We, we sort of have this, like, ridiculous line in the sand of if it's listed on a foreign exchange, it's an international company. That's not how the world works, right? We don't care about where someone's listed. All we care about is where their revenue and expenses are. So you look at the S&P 500 and you look at all these multinational companies, right? And you look at the breakdown of their revenue and you say am I not buying a portfolio tied to the global economy if I just buy the S&P 500? Like why do I need to go invest in France or Germany or the UK to say I'm internationally invested? Um it does so that so that whole like I I take a bit of What's the word I want to use? Like, uh, uh, there's a bit of conflict for me as to like, does this whole line in the sand even make sense? Um, That doesn't even then begin to address the currency issue, right? Because if I buy, if I'm a a U.S. investor and I earn money in dollars and I predominantly spend in dollars and I buy uh, international equities, well, I now have a currency issue because local currency in, in Germany and France might be the euro But I'm converting that back to dollars. So a perfect example is this year. Everyone's saying international stocks are doing phenomenally well. They're not doing any better than U.S. stocks. It's just that the U.S. dollar is down versus international international currencies. Do I want a huge currency overlay on my portfolio? I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) But no one talks about that, right? I don't think these are trivial items. So I will say... Where I have come down is that I think if you buy, um, large cap, globally revenue, diversified companies in the U S you are investing internationally. And I will say I have a heavy U S tilt. Um, I think the risks there, right. Where, where you're sort of taking risks is again, um, there's geopolitical risks. Uh, If you are a U.S. investor and all your money is tied to the dollar, you are taking certain monetary risk, right? Um, We don't sort of expect hyperinflation in the U.S. dollar, and we hope it doesn't happen. But there's plenty of countries that if you only invested in your local currency, that would be an issue. Um, That's where I try to get the the trend following to offset that risk. But I, I have come down on the side again. I think you can go way down the rabbit hole on this concept of what does it even mean to invest internationally. I would argue you can invest in U.S. large cap and you are investing internationally in a diversified way.
2: Yeah, to your point, I mean, this is a much more complicated issue than many people think it is. It's not just, you know, if you're investing in the S&P 500, you're buying the U.S. and then you have this separate international exposure. Um, just one more on the equities. I want to ask you about valuations. I don't know if you remember this, but Ned Faber did this thought experiment a while back on Twitter where he started like listing higher and higher CAPE ratios and said, Is there any point where you would stop holding U.S. equities? I think it got to like 45, maybe in the dot-com bubble, but Japan was like 100 or something like that. I mean, how do you think about that? Is there any level of valuation where that would play a role in your investment strategy or is that something you just don't think about?
1: Yeah, so I I think uh, valuation can't exist uh, without sort of a discussion of where interest rates are and where inflation is. So I think I can't just say like, oh, it's at 45 I'm selling. Well, that's going to be dependent on interest rates and inflation. And, and expected growth rates. I, I will say, I have this philosophy, and this is sort of weird coming from someone who is an active manager, but my general philosophy is the the market's right. Like, that's where I start my assumption. So if the market's trading at a PE of 30 or 45, I think objectively, we'd look back at the dot-com era and say, wow, everyone was a fool. Well, is that necessarily true? Um, I don't know. I think it's a lot safer to assume the market's historically proven to be a decently efficient vehicle for the distribution of capital. If the broad market is priced at a cape of 45, like, is there a good reason for that? Um, You know, uh, I remember back in the early 2010s, everyone talked about how expensive the U.S. was versus international stocks. Oh, look at the cape of U.S. versus the cape of international. If you made that relative value play, you had a horrible decade of being underweight U.S. and long international. If you want to know why? Because you weren't adjusting for profitability. You weren't adjusting for sector differences. You weren't adjusting for geopolitical risks. You weren't adjusting for all the issues that Europe has uh, with their member states getting along with each other, right? The market priced that in, and the market got it, you know, like, that's why it was trading at a lower cap. So to me, I, I start with the presumption markets are pretty darn efficient, And you have to go to real extremes, like real extremes from a percentile basis for me to make any tactical tilt. So as an example, uh, Cliff Asness has written a ton about value spreads, right? Uh, And they are at dot-com levels and like have barely come back in. Now for me, back in what, he started writing about this in 2017. It was like, when valuation spreads between value stocks and growth stocks hit one standard deviation, I'm like, It could be noise. There could be other factors that just aren't getting caught up. It could be intangibles. It could be this. It could be sector differences. Who knows? It hits two standard deviations. It could still be noise. Like these are models and noise affects models. When you get to like, no, we've hit seven standard deviations. From a modeling perspective, the probability of that being noise diminishes exponentially. And so for me, it's like, well, is there a CAPE level? Probably not, unless Cape were so extreme that we're hit, we're breaking highs that sort of are unjustifiable by any sort of potential noise. So that's that's the way I tend to think about those things. But again, I'm so friggin' taxable in my money; <laughs> it's hard for me to do a lot there. I want to get back to the idea of return stacking. You brought that up at the beginning, and uh, for
2: for anyone who hasn't listened yet, we have a separate episode with Corey and Rodrigo Gordillo where we go into it for an hour. So. We won't be able to cover all that here but i know it's a core idea that you use to build your portfolio so you can just talk at a high level what it is and how you use it to build your portfolio
1: yeah so the real basic idea here is um we want to include alternatives in our portfolio but but the core problem or the struggle that we face is what we call the funding problem so if i if i like stocks and bonds and i want to include managed futures historically i've had to sell stocks and bonds to make room in my portfolio And again, this goes back to this de-risking problem. The more alternatives I add in, a lot of those alternatives, especially in ETFs and mutual funds, just have a lower ball than equities. And so I may be creating a more diversified portfolio, might have like help with my compound growth rate, but I still might underperform just equities in the long run, simply because it's a less risky portfolio. So for me to get back to where I want to go, I need to use a little bit of leverage. Uh, enter this idea of return stacking, which is really just, again, making this idea portable alpha that institutions use uh, uh, approachable for everyday investors by packaging it up in ETFs and mutual funds. So the core idea, a uh, very basic example, is let's say you're a 60-40 investor. Uh, we launched a fund recently that for every dollar you invest, we try to give you a dollar of bond exposure and a dollar of managed futures exposure. What that does is, as a sixty forty investor, if you wanted to, say, overlay 20% of your portfolio with managed futures, you could sell 20% of your bonds and buy our fund. What that would do is give you 60% in stocks, uh, 20% in bonds, 20% in our fund. In our fund, that 20% is giving you both 20% in bonds, so you maintain the full 40, plus 20% in managed futures. Now because it's levered, right, we have to subtract out the financing rate. We're, we're borrowing money effectively, so we have to pay that back. And so it's it's like layering the excess returns of managed futures on top of our 6040 portfolio. Um, and so that's why we call it return stacking, because I think it it hopefully illuminates it's this idea of like a plus b. It's not it's not an either or decision, it's an and decision.
2: I'm just working at a high level. How do you think about the idea of how much leverage to apply? Like, it seems like with these uncorrelated asset classes, you actually could apply a good amount and still not have that risky of a portfolio. How do you think about like what you're comfortable with and how much leverage you apply?
1: Yeah, so this is um this is a lot of art, a lot less science. So one of the things you can do, and I think this is a really fun exercise, but I'm also a big nerd, is you can actually take different portfolios and... Um, backtest them at different leverage levels, right? So I could say, let me take this diversified portfolio of stocks, bonds, and managed futures and degross it. So add cash and then start to add, take the cash away and then eventually get a, above 100% invested, subtract excess cash return for for how much leverage you have and go as far as you want. And you can plot the compound growth rate of that portfolio. Now what you would see is it, it'll look like a hump. So on the X axis, you have your leverage level. On the Y axis, you have the compound annual growth rate of that portfolio at that leverage. You'll see a hump. At the peak of the hump is basically for that back test, that leverage level maximize the compound growth rate. Okay, so you might say, that's that's the leverage level I want. Well, the the problem with that, is the reason the portfolio um, with less leverage doesn't maximize your return is because you didn't take enough risk. The reason the portfolio with more leverage than that underperformed is because you took too much risk, right? If you do it over a long period, you might find the portfolio that maximized the compound growth rate. But if you then look at sub-periods, say five years or ten years, you might find a very different leverage level, right? If you look at a period that's got a massive drawdown in it, like 2008, your leverage level may be way lower than it would have been if you look at a period that's very bullish. And so the art of what I try to do with the way I think about this is I go, all right, let me look at all these different sub-periods. What leverage level do I sort of think safely is attainable and sustainable through all these shorter time horizons um, that is still going to get me towards that in theory long-term optimal compound growth rate. What I find is if you plot it over the long run, a say 30-year period of of looking at this, 40, 50 years, try to include as much data as you can, you end up pretty far to the left of like what the numbers would tell you. The numbers might say, hey Corey, you should be 3x uh, leverage, you know, and I'm gonna sit closer to 1.5 times. Because that 1.5 times is much more sustainable. That 3x, what it's hiding is that there was a 90% drawdown at one point. Right. So it's sort of like, okay, how do I, how do I find the number that's going to maximize my compound growth rate with respect to some drawdown constraints and survivability in the short term?
2: Yeah. So it seems like behavior would be a huge part of that. Like that number is going to be different for every single investor because it's it's your ability to withstand those drawdowns is what determines that to a large degree. Absolutely. So so there's this question we always ask in here, which is this this question about, are you changing your portfolio for inflation? And so we, we put a short up on Twitter the other day about this. And uh, I had asked Wes this question, Wes Gray, and basically his answer was, you're an idiot. Like, why would I, if, why would I possibly change my portfolio if I have a robust investment strategy? So I will ask you the question, but I'm assuming I'm probably going to get a similar answer, which is no, I'm not making any changes to my portfolio.
1: Yeah, honestly I think the most the, the truth is uh I could probably defer most answers to Wes. Wes is pretty savvy on this stuff. I I agree with him. I mean again, the whole purpose of the design of my portfolio is to have the three legs of the stool where I think I'm generating long-term positive returns from risk p- premium, or trading strategy and trying to balance the economic growth risk and inflation risk I'm taking so that there's no one economic regime that I I'm, I'm too exposed to. Um you, you guys, I know, have heard me say the phrase risk can't be destroyed, only transformed. The way I sort of think about it is risk is like this big ball of Play-Doh. And if you're in a hyper-concentrated all-equity portfolio, you're probably in this, all that Play-Doh is in the regime of economic growth risk, right? If the economy really takes it on the chin, you're probably in for a big drawdown. The way I think about building the portfolio is trying to add different components so that I'm taking away from the risk of, of ruin in that regime, but I'm introducing risk in other regimes. And so I think of it as like smashing down on that play doh and spreading it out. Again, for me, I am making changes to my portfolio, but it's not because I'm, I'm trying to make changes for inflation. This isn't tactical. It's I'm trying to over time rebalance my portfolio away from I'm, I'm overly equity heavy, in my opinion, because of some legacy decisions because of some private investments I made that aren't liquid, but have grown tremendously over the last decade. Um, We can talk about those, Um, that I am um, constantly new capitals being put to work on the bond and managed futures side.
2: Um, Just two more before I hand it back to Justin. Um, Since since you invented the idea of rebalanced timing luck, I would probably be a horrendous podcast host if I did not ask you how, how you think about rebalancing your own portfolio and how do you think about mitigating that risk?
1: Yeah. So the, uh, two components, again, I'm, I'm allocating to my own funds that we try to address that rebalance timing luck. Um, and to me without going way into the weeds here, the basic idea is, um, in my opinion, you should be rebalancing a little bit of your portfolio very frequently. The problem once again is when you are an asset manager who is under the purview of compliance and regulatory, every trade you want to make in your portfolio requires um, compliance oversight. So if I have all these individual stocks, it's really hard for me to trade them because I got to submit all these trade requests and trade tickets. So I am slowly working over time to consolidate my portfolio into just a few funds so that I can more frequently rebalance them. Um, But I largely just keep an eye on it, call it once a month to sort of look at, at an asset class level. Have things sort of gotten out of whack, and then from from general targets, and then I'm trying to sort of slowly make small changes uh, where possible, and tax loss harvest if I can uh, certain positions. That makes
2: sense. And the last thing I would ask you about before I hand it back to Justin is the private equity. So you have 18.7 percent of your portfolio in private equity. What's in there? Is that your is that your company? Is that other things?
1: Yeah. So I did not include the valuation of my own company because I honestly, who knows? Again, I I discount it to zero. <laughs> honestly. <laughs> I just, you know, it is what it is. Uh, it's too hard to value and it's too near and dear to me. So it's probably the wrong valuation, whatever I come up with. Um, so no, this is, these are actual private investments I've made. Uh, in the early 2010s, I invested in a seed uh, fund that made uh, investments in, in seed stage tech companies around the world. I invested in probably around 2014, 2015 in a private equity fund. Um, that I got access to. I think that's a space where there's a few firms that do it really well and I was fortunate enough to get access to one of those firms. Um, And then I have friends that have started businesses that have needed uh, a little bit of startup capital that I just, I've worked with them. I trust them. I've done safe notes with them, which is a very popular way of, of sort of doing some seed round stuff. I will say, again, this is an area where if I look at the numbers, I'm not sure... I I am better off in the private stuff. Like, like I'm not sure I earned a premium. I think if I had just taken all that money, like in the seed stage startups, if I had taken the money I invested and invested it in the NASDAQ, I think I would have had the exact same return, except it would be 100% liquid. Um, In the private equity stuff, it is pretty weirdly idiosyncratic. So I have this big chunk of my portfolio that is frustratingly illiquid. There are some, in theory, potential liquidity events coming up. Uh, but like that seed stage fund, I'm up ostensibly 5x, but it's all on paper. And I've, you know, never guy who knows when I'll get the money out. So, you know, it's been over a decade since I made that investment in liquidity has been near zero. So we'll see. Yeah. Nice. I mean, that's kind of good. It sounds like it's going to
0: work out. A lot of times those seed stage things effectively go to zero.
1: Yeah. Well, they were spreading their bets, but it's, it's really fascinating. If you dig through the returns, I would say 70% of the returns come from investing in one company, this company Canva, which is, you know, um, who knows how big they are now. <laughs> I'm in, I'm in Canva like every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so right. They invested very early on in Canva. The position has gotten massive. But so when I look at that, like when I look at that 18%, if you know, one third of it is in, uh, the seed stage stuff. 80% of that is Canva. So I just have this massive <laughs> exposure to Canva in my portfolio. You have in the chart, you have, um, I mean, it's it's such a
0: small percentage, but we did want to ask you about it anyways, because you're pretty transparent on Twitter with what you're doing in the crypto space. And like you said, that, I think it was more maybe exploratory for you. But what, what were you, were you trading? Were you buying NFTs? What were your-
1: What wasn't I doing? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I really got involved I got involved late. I, I I think like most people in the quant space, I probably heard about crypto very early. My background is computer science, so I, I read a lot of the early white papers in 2012. I dabbled in the stuff. Um, but I never got serious until probably 2021 when a lot of the infrastructure got set up. And I was fortunate enough to be living in Grand Cayman, which meant I could trade on the international exchanges. And from a quant perspective, there were just... Really easy layup trades to be made. Um, cash and carry was one where you went along the underlying spot cryptocurrency and short the futures market. There was a huge premium embedded 20% plus annualized returns for what was in theory, uh, you know, sort of a, a hedge trade. It's not arbitrage because you had to come up with the offsetting capital if if the spread blew out on you. So it's not that easy, but it was one of those like you expect the spread to converge over time and you get a 20% annualized return for effectively like lending capital. So it's like, okay, that that's a pretty good return. And then once my money was on-ramped into the system, it was like, all right, let's see what else is going on. This DeFi stuff is pretty cool. What is DeFi yield farming? I'm pretty sure it's just a way of incentivizing users to adopt these protocols like the way Uber sub- used to subsidize you to take take their, you know, uh ride sharing program versus Lyft. Well, these these DeFi applications were subsidizing liquidity by paying people in their own governance token, uh so yeah, yeah, I went around yield farming, uh which and then you just dump the money. So I it was sort of like once I was in, I got more and more in I was flipping NFTs for a while just for fun. I think that's a pure sentiment-driven market. Uh, I think there's some really interesting edges you can look at with on-chain data. Some really fascinating stuff. I will say I pulled way back on that. It's just from a tax perspective, a nightmare. I think my accountant hates me. Um, So I pulled way back on that. I have pretty passive exposure just to like Ethereum right now. I've got a couple NFTs that I hold on to. Um, but, but, uh, I keep my eye on it. Again, this goes back to like, I want to keep exploring. I don't want to just be dismissive as I get older of new technology. I, I want a little bit of skin in the game, but I think it's like 1% of my portfolio. If it, if it went to zero, I, I wouldn't be crying about it. I've sized that one so I can tolerate all the swings.
0: But I hear what you're saying though. Once you're kind of in the cryptocurrency, like ecosystem, like kind of keeping it there. And sort of, you know, like I did some DeFi stuff and I, the Coinbase wallet and, you know, transferring it from Coinbase over the Coinbase wallet and then buying. Part of it for me, too, was just seeing like, I think when I gave Jack for Christmas, I gave you some Ethereum and you can just like transfer this shit like to another person, you know, and you sold it, right?
2: Jack, you sold yours? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I did. I did finally sell it. Um, Pretty much at the bottom, I think. Yeah. Yeah, he got the he got the
1: Christmas gift and sold it immediately. I wish I'd sold it immediately. It would have been worth a lot more than when I did sell it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a you know, it's a really fascinating market. Like the NFT market very much trades like illiquid securities, right? So I I don't know. This this is a tough one for me. I I would say I, I think there's a benefit. This was easier when like FTX was around. But I think for like young traders, as long as they don't get in over their heads, Trading NFTs is a really good experience in trading illiquid assets, right You get stuck with inventory. How do you work a market? How do you do it OTC? you go into these different trading channels and you try to trade with different people and make deals. Um, when when FTX was around, binance is a little harder to get on, but when FTX was around with all the derivatives, you know you could write market making bots because they had an API, right I, there was a trade for a while. This one actually exists in traditional finance too. So levered products, right? Like a three times levered exchange traded fund that resets daily has to buy and sell every single day based upon the returns to sort of reset their leverage amount. This exact same thing happened on FTX. They had these tokens that were levered and were resetting every day. And the thing was they published their exact reset process. So they basically, it was like at 12.02 a.m. UTC, They were just going to go into market and market trade whatever they needed to buy or sell. And so there was a point uh, that I was, you know, that's that's like 8 p.m. Eastern, Uh, I, you know, 730 p.m. Eastern, I would go and calculate, Okay, how much do they need to buy? How much do they need to sell? What does the market depth look like right now? I would front run the trade and then I'd sell into their buying or I'd buy my short into their selling. And it was an insanely profitable strategy. And it's a fun little quant strategy that's a holdover from, you know, traditional finance that worked out in in crypto. And I think for that reason, like crypto can be a really fun way for people to explore some strategies that maybe don't work in traditional finance anymore. They've been arbed away, but you can still try to play around with them in crypto. Just be careful. Just please be careful. People get addicted to this really easily. We're going to have to put a big disclaimer in on this part. <laughs> Be careful. Don't don't invest more than you can afford to lose.
0: Your uh, experience or I guess admission that, you know, you kind of structured, maybe you could have structured your accounts a little bit better um, a few years ago. Got me thinking, do you think you would ever use a financial advisor? Are you the type of person that might
1: or no? I'll tell you what has been weighing heavily on my mind recently is um When it was, before I was married, it was, if I get hit by a bus, my money just goes to my parents. My dad will figure it out. He'll do whatever he wants to do with the money. I got married, and I and I was at a point that I said, if I get hit by a bus and my wife's still around, I've given her access to everything, you know, my parents will figure it out. You know, they'll, 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 my dad knows finance well enough. He'll see my accounts. All the instructions are there. Now that I'm having a kid... I'm thinking about what happens if I get hit by a bus and my wife's still around, how do I structure things to make her life easier so that she doesn't have to think about this stuff. Um, and then if we both get hit by a bus, how do I structure my estate for my kid, um, to provide for them? And that I I definitely need estate planning help for sure. That's not something I'm going to navigate on my own. Um, A financial planner could probably step in there. I'm not sure I'd use a financial advisor because I don't need the investment consulting help, but a financial planner, estate planner, tax attorney, absolutely.
0: When we had Wes on, this was kind of funny. I don't know the exact, remember what he said? He had like, however, hundreds of managed futures contracts. And then on Twitter, was it Rick Ferry that said, Rick Ferry, good luck having your wife like unwind all those when something happens.
1: (laughs) I so, so a very honest discussion I had with my wife the other day is I said, look, um, the way I manage the portfolio, I, I think is like, is the way I think is optimal for us, but isn't going to make any sense to you. My wife doesn't know what managed futures are. And even if it's packaged up in a fund, like it's not going to help her, versus if I just took all that and I put it into some like high quality dividend paying stocks, which by the way, I think is a suboptimal way to invest, but she just knew there was money that was coming out every single month that she was getting paid in dividends and never had to touch the portfolio really like there's something to be said for a sustainable investment strategy matching your lifestyle and my wife's just not super interested in finance it's just not what she wants to think about so you know if I if I kick the bucket early should that all just get rolled into a much easier strategy that kicks her out the cash flow where someone doesn't have to go in and sell every month to get to pay her uh, and manufacture the dividend? there's an argument for it. So we ask a question at the end here that gets us this idea that,
2: you know, everything we invest in is not to make a profit. So I have a racing sailboat and a racing sailboat is a horrendous investment. It just drains money, but I've gotten so much joy out of it. I go out with my friends every Wednesday night, you know, we have a beer, we race around the course. And so I'm wondering if there's anything like that in your life that may not be the greatest financial investment, but something you get a lot of joy out of.
1: Yeah, I mentioned I'm having a kid, right? <laughs> I think that's the definition of a poor financial investment. Um... Uh, I would say at the moment, no, there isn't. And that's largely because during COVID, my wife and I massively downsized and basically lived out of, you know, two bags in the Caribbean for a year and a half. And so we got rid of everything and we've only just sort of reestablished ourselves back in the States about six months ago and have are renting a house because we needed the room for a baby and have just started repurchasing things. I'm not a huge things person. I definitely overspend on vacations. Like, I'm a, I'm that classic experiences millennial. Like, I want to go travel, and when I travel, I want to do it nicely, and I'll pay up for the plane ticket, and I'll pay up for, you know, a tour guide who really knows the local area and that sort of stuff. So that tends to be where my frivolous spending comes in. Do you have any favorite trips you've done? My wife and I just did Patagonia. Um, but I would say m- maybe my... F- favorite trip of all would have been Alaska Alaska is just this unbelievable in many ways very like very much like Patagonia but the hiking was incredible the sightseeing was incredible the animals were incredible um, we were back country for quite a bit uh, I went skiing in Japan if you're a skier that's phenomenal so yeah try to do try to do that kind of stuff I made a, a promise with my wife when we were younger uh, we've been together for 17 years that we travel somewhere every somewhere new every year and it doesn't mean outside the country because i think the u.s has some unbelievable things to explore um but we we try to go somewhere new in the world in the country every single year and um a lot of it involves you know being outside and hiking well the one thing if you continue that as the
0: baby gets older as it you know becomes a young child and you know that traveling
1: is like really great for kids for sure We're going to see if we can pull it off. We've sort of pinky promised each other we're going to try to get to Iceland this year, uh, hopefully late summer. But we've also never had a kid before. And everyone I tell that to just laughs at us. So we'll see. (laughs) We'll see. So the standard closing question is if you had to impart one lesson you've learned from building
0: your portfolio to the average investor, what would that be?
1: Who am I to give anyone advice? It's such a personal thing. Um, I I would say... I feel, well, here's something I feel very confident about. Think holistically, right? When you think about your investment portfolio, do not forget to consider your human capital. Do not forget to consider the things you want to do with your money. Uh, Those are, you know, we'll call them liabilities, but the things you want to spend money on and and figure out how that all matches up. Because again, I, I think ignoring that human capital element, uh, is ignores a huge, important uh, investment in your life. Uh, And I think if you consider it as an investment, it makes the whole picture a lot clearer.
0: Thanks, Corey. This has been awesome. Lots of great stuff in here. Um, We wish you all the best with the ETFs, Um, the baby. You're going to be a very busy man, but a very happy one soon. So thank you for doing this with us and we'll we'll see you. Bye. Thank you.
1: Thanks, guys real pleasure thanks for having me
0: hi guys this is justin again thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of excess returns you can follow jack on twitter at, at practical quant and follow me on twitter at, at jj Carbono. if you found this discussion interesting and valuable please subscribe in either itunes or on youtube or leave a review or a comment we appreciate